0: Our software is part of our somatasy. It's constantly learning from us because we change it. And then we learn from it because we're actually doing the ops. What I want to learn is more about like really seeing a change in the world. It's not about me mastering something. And it's not about me doing what I want on my own computer. I want interdependence, not autonomy.
1: Hi, I'm Liz Fong-Jones. And I'm Charity Meters. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or Olicast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. Olicast
2: is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest in this show,
1: or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Olicast. So tell us about symathysy. How did you become interested in it? What's the definition of it? What even is it?
0: (laughs) Symathysy is a learning system made of learning parts. And I found it in this book by Nora Bateson, who's an anthropologist. And she has grown up with systems thinking because her father was Gregory Bateson, who's one of the huge systems thinkers of last century. And Nora talks about how system has become too mechanical. Because there are a lot of systems, like machines, that are mechanical. But living systems are not. Uh, an ecosystem, or the economy, or your team, these are all made up of parts that learn. And because of that, the whole system learns. Russell Ackoff said, a system is not the sum of its parts, that's an aggregate. Uh, it's a product of their interactions, but Samathese takes this further because the parts are each a product of all their past interactions. So we are a product of all the teams and families and communities we've been a part of ever. Which is why it's so hard to predict the future. Well, this seems like a good time for you to introduce yourself. Uh, I'm Jessica Kerr, online known as Jessitron, but my friends call me Jess. So excited that you're here today. You know, you're talking about this and I'm thinking about,
2: I've been thinking so much lately about like how we build high performing teams because people tend to approach this by hiring or like looking straight at the team. You know, how do we we get the best people? You know, how do we get the best engineers? But that's like, when you think about the sum total of things that enable an individual to ship software quickly and reliably on a team, like I, I feel like maybe 10% of it is what is in your brain. Like the algorithms, and the data structures are like, they're necessary. They're a necessary but not sufficient skill because like so much of it is like, what are the defaults? What is all the software that's been written and built to help to get you to this point? All the libraries, all of the deploy scripts, all of the the, the expectations. Yeah, see, it's not just the people either. It's not just the people. It is the expectations. It is the the pressures. It is the the scar tissue that you have from things that have gone wrong in the past. It's all these things. Like, yes, we should be thinking about how to build high performing teams,
0: but there's so much that goes into it because, like you said, like tools create who we are. Yeah, and you think that we create high performing teams. But actually, high-performing create teams us. create us. I <laughs> exactly. do.
1: This is the thing. Yes. <laughs> a high-performing team creates good engineers. Yeah. That is the number one thing that it does. It's kind of the seeing the light thing, right? Like if you've never seen a high-performing team, then you don't know where to start. But if you have someone who has seen a high-performing team, they can kind of help reproduce those practices within your organization. Yes, but not exactly. You can't just take it as a recipe. You have to like adapt it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, copy the questions, not the answers. Oh, I like that.
1: So what are some of those questions for you?
0: The question is always, how could we be doing this better? Uh, Today, I've been reflecting on personal responsibility and how it's a cop-out. It's easier to say, I take responsibility. This is about me. It's my fault. And I'm going to do better next time. Not that it's easy, but that's easier than Working together to affect system change.
1: Hmm. Hmm. I find that so interesting because if you don't know my my personal life, my personal life revolves around getting a bunch of nerds online to coordinate with each other, right? The complete out of context, whether it's Eve Online or World of Warcraft. And it's kind <laughs> of interesting to observe those systems dynamics of, right? Like. Things like psychological safety, does someone feel safe saying, you know, hey, yes, you know, I screwed up. I'm the one who wiped the raid, right? Mm -hmm. As well as kind of the broader things of how do we make it easier for people to know where to stand, right? Like those are kind of interesting things that also relate to how we develop software engineering teams too. How do we make it safe to talk about how an outage happened, safe to make sure that we can ship software safely in the future?
0: Yeah, you should have known that about how, not to delete the rate array, along with all the other information in the entire world that was hypothetically available to you at that time.
1: Yeah, this goes a lot to the kind of all spa school of thinking, right? Like about, you know, talking about hindsight is twenty-twenty, right? Like you, we have to assume that people had the best intentions at the time and worked with the information that they knew.
0: Right. Whereas it's so easy to create a story in hindsight of how this was obvious. I had a great story the other day. My partner Avdi was talking about how in the old... Slightly random role-playing games. There's a nerdy word for that, and I forget it. I'm not a good enough nerd. This is fine. Um, uh, the the role-playing games that were just a little random, and like he's typing in the terminal, and you look around. There's various objects in the room. He's like, I don't know what to do. I kick the sink. A bunch of snakes pop out of the drain, and you die. Oh, net hack. This
1: is <laughs> net hack. Yes, yes, yes. Net
0: hack. Yes, yes. Thank you. It's net hack, and that's like satisfying. That's fun. Because you never would have predicted it, but it makes sense in retrospect.
1: And you learn something from it.
2: This is why I love outages. I love outages because they're a break in the routine. It's the time when everyone stops and looks and and inspects, what are we doing? Does this still make sense? What has changed? What's new? Like, it's, it's an opportunity for us to, like... All of the things that we take for granted and we never think about why is it this way? Should it be this way? Because we can't, right? You can't operate throughout your life if you're stopping every
0: second to reevaluate. Exactly. You can't work together to affect system change yeah. on everything. You can't, and it's the, it's the perfect like focal point. It draws your
2: attention to a moment which is an opportunity for you to like take everything in again and 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 like re. Ask yourselves like the fundamental questions of why are we here? (laughs) Yeah. Are we doing the right thing? At the same (laughs) time
1: though, it shouldn't necessarily take a full on outage for us to do that examination, right? We can do that continuously.
2: It shouldn't, but it often does. We're fucking busy. You know, and so honestly, working with non engineering teams has been so enlightening. It really draws my attention to all of the work that's been done in this field to retrain our brains Mm. to see these outages as opportunities. Because in the business side, they don't yet. They're terrified. They don't, you know, yeah. they think they want to crush. Oh, it's my fault. You know, and it's like, no, 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 this is not how we talk here. You know, like it's, it's not about your fault. This is any reasonable person in your shoes would have done that. So how can we talk about how to do this differently as a system? And like that district, that jarring, like has just made me so aware of the work that's been done and, and, and like how much benefit. Everyone could like VP sales and marketing, you know, they're traditionally kind of at each other's throats because they know that their heads are on the chopping block, you know, if we fuck up and how do you retrain people to be, you know, accountable to tell the story? Yes, absolutely. You're in charge. That means that, you know, you're accountable, but You know, it's not about fucking up. It's not about, it's like, how can we get the information out so that we can all see it and apply our brains and do better?
1: And learn from it. And I think that learning element is so crucial because I I think recently our colleague Danielle published this article about why AA Ops is bullshit. And it's kind of a, if your machines are like taking the learning away from you, then you aren't learning. Right.
0: Yeah. Now, if it can say, hey, I noticed something interesting here, and then we can apply our amazing power of telling a causal story about that in hindsight. Yes. Yes. <laughs> human, like any machine can
2: detect a blip, uh, up, down, whatever. Only humans can apply meaning to it. And honestly, I feel like systems are blipping all the time. Like we cannot alert. It seems very simple, right? Just page if there's a problem. But in fact, things are failing all the time. Right. And which of them are a problem? Which of them are a problem? Which of them are intentional? Which of them are (laughs) actually good signs? Which are just noise? Which are
1: like what is a just a release going out? Right, releases are inherently blips. It's a change. It's a big change,
2: which is why I think that AI ops is doomed for the foreseeable future because, like, it's it's all about training a system to detect like anomalies in the
0: system as it is today, and every time you ship something, you change it all. Yes. Yes, because our software is part of our symathysy. It's constantly learning from us because we change it. And then we learn from it because we're actually doing the ops. And the tool, so like it, the Richard
2: Cook, the famous like sociotechnical diagram where he's got, you know, there's the tools in the middle, there's the artifacts at the bottom, and there's the people and the meaning at the top, you know. And if you look at the systems that we have, so you've got your team, you've got your production system, and you've got your tools. hmm that mediate between the two and you know, okay. So imagine like you're on my team or whatever. And I'm like, I'm going to write a cron job. Whenever you write a test that fails, I'm going to make it paid you and your manager is going to send an email to the entire company. Just like guess broke something. Like, how's that going to impact your willingness to take risks? Well, first I'm <laughs>
0: going to write a whole lot of tests. Yeah. that. <laughs> of course you are. Of course you are. And push them <laughs> right? And be like, aha, I had an effect on the world. <laughs> the
2: emotional the emotional consequences of the tooling that we write, like, I don't believe that you can be a senior engineer until you spend enough time in production. Otherwise, I don't care how many data structures and algorithms you know, your intuition will have been trained on something that isn't real. And that means that I can't trust it.
1: The challenge, though, is defining what, what in-production means, right? Yeah. Like In-production doesn't necessarily mean on-call on the weekend. No. It just means having some real-world exposure to the consequences of your code.
2: Software engineers do not spend enough time looking at their code in production, just watching it run. You know, just asking themselves, you know, like, I just wrote this blog post about ODD, observability-driven development, because, like, TDD stops at the border of your laptop, right? Yeah. Like, you've mocked out
0: Everything that's interesting, which is, you needed to do that. This is useful. And that gets back to personal responsibility because you personally can see a change in your personal world that you have complete control over. Oh, it's
1: very satisfying.
2: Very satisfying. Very good for the ego. It's not
1: just responsibility. It's it's autonomy, right? It's autonomy and the ability to set... It's the power. Yes. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yes. Exactly. And So many engineers have the power to change their code,
0: but they aren't getting I more am- ambitious than that. Yes, so so of- let's talk
1: about that ambition, right? Like you started playing around with observability in your own code recently. Kind of what motivated you to do that? And kind of what have you seen so far?
0: Well, we're starting an app. Abdi and I are starting an app for our, our personal. We we want it to be in the world and because we enjoy developing the elevator pitch is okay, so there's lots of people that you know and you'd love to catch up with or that you don't know yet and you'd love to have a Zoom chat with them at some point, but you hate calendaring. Mm. This app is like, okay. Send this invite to your friends. Some of them will sign up for a time slot. I mean, for for MVP, it's just going to be one time slot. Okay, who wants to chit-chat with me at 7.30 on a random Tuesday? Sounds great. And then uh, everybody who accepts, you create a relationship, and then randomly, some of those relationships get calendar invites on Monday. That's the concept. And so we started a Rails app, because Avdi is an expert in Rails, on Heroku, because that's the easiest and then Avdi got the systems tests running because he wanted to see change before we make a, make a actually implement a feature. And I was like, I'm not doing anything until I can see what's happening in production. Like, I want to notice when I hit the site. I want to see that happening. Yeah. I know that when... I mean, the first thing we did, of course, was deploy something and see that the world has changed because now this Heroku app URL shows something. And it didn't before. But... When I hit that, I want to see something change. And I know I can get that from Honeycomb. And it was so easy to hook it up with Rails. But like closing that feedback loop
2: of actually seeing it run in production, I feel like what we need is to create that hunger in engineers to like to not feel like their job is done until they've seen it there you know like your job is not done when you've merged to master you don't move on then you wait until you look at it in production and you ask yourself is it doing what I expected it to do Mm -hmm. because we would catch 80 to 90 percent of all problems before users ever get to them right like you have it all in your head you know what you're trying to do it's the freshest it's ever going to be Mm -hmm. and if you are instrumenting as you write with the expectation that I'm going to need to see this right in broad with users hitting it. That feedback loop—it's so simple and it's so powerful.
1: And like, but there are prerequisites for that feedback loop. That's kind of what I what I feel is. It,
2: it sounds simple, but there's a lot that goes into it, right? Did you read the Stripe Developer Report where they showed that like 43 percent of engineering engineers time goes to bullshit. does not go to moving the business forward. does not go to anything useful. It's doing the work to get to the work that you need to do, right? Mm -hmm. And so much of that, to my mind, is that they can't see what they're doing. And they Mm -hmm. aren't used to being able to Mm -hmm. see what they're doing. And so you spend a lot of time just, like, trying to look for the thing or doing the wrong thing or doing something, but not closing
0: that simple loop of just, like, looking at it and making sure it's doing what you wanted it to do. Yeah. I think of it like science, Except in the physical sciences, we're really limited in our instruments. We have to keep inventing new instruments to, to inspect a world that doesn't care whether we inspect it. Yeah. Whereas we yeah. get to change the world yeah. so it reports to us. <laughs> yes. It's a little mine castles in the sky
2: which is why engineering has been so hard. A lot of it has been that we've expected people to construct these sky castles in their minds and hold them uh-huh. there. And and when they have a bug or something, they're they're literally trying to trace it in their mind. In the mental that model. hard. And your mind is always out of date. Right. <laughs> and if we can just bring it into a more tactile, like
0: an experience of just like getting used to using a tool for that. Well, getting used to the part that, yeah, our mental models are always incomplete and out of date. And what we need to be good at is building and updating and restoring those mental models, not holding them and feeling smart.
1: Yeah, exactly. right? Like We need to plan for failure. We need to plan for people to rotate off projects. And that means being able to reconstruct from first principles. That was kind of one of my favorite things about repeatedly switching teams is that I hmm. really, really honed that ability to work on first principles debugging. I noticed that When
2: you came in the door at Honeycomb, like Liz came in the door and like the first day, like she was productive. She was just like, ah, I see this, this. You could tell. This is a skill in and of itself, learning to reconstruct
0: and act on partial information. But Yeah, learning to form a theory, come up with hypotheses, and then
1: test those. It's scientific, right? It's being scientific about our engineering. It is. Ooh,
0: there's a concept. That's right. I don't want to be a software engineer. I want to be a software scientist.
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing I wanted to kind of go back to was the uh, decision that you used to kind of build on Rails, build on Heroku, right? Like kind of, what were some of the motivating decisions Mm. there, right? Like you could have built your own, you know, Node.js server, you could have, you know, hosted on Kubernetes, right? Like what made you pick kind of those two technologies?
0: Okay, so a technology choice, we have this idea in the culture that suits the language to the people who are using it.
2: Yeah. Because it's a
0: relationship. That language. I mean, yeah, some languages are not suitable to certain problems. If you're going to do data science, uh, you need the, the, the relationship of the language to the community. Do that in Scala or Python because that's where the work is. Right. So I I will, like I have a somewhat counter
2: example. Uh, so at Parse, we, we wrote the first version of you know every, the API and everything in Rails. And, and we chose it for the reasons, that, basically the people reasons, because, you know, it was fast and there's people who kn- knew it and everything. And three years in, we realized that we had to rewrite re- the whole fucking thing because threads, because the entire platform, million apps, all go
0: down in a heartbeat without thread. This app belongs in Lambda. We're writing the first version in Rails. <laughs> <Gotcha>. <laughs> because we have some questions to answer about whether it's useful. Mm-hmm.
1: It's a great mocking language. Yeah, prototyping, right? It's, it's absolutely prototyping. Yeah, yeah, it's
0: it's going to be good for that uh, because Avdi's an expert in it. If he weren't, it wouldn't be useful for that. But also... If it was just you, what would you have chosen? Oh, if it was just me, you know, probably TypeScript, just because that's the thing I'm the least bad at right now. Switching languages a lot means I'm not spectacular at any of them anymore. (laughs) But I don't want the focus to be on learning a technology right now. I mean, so when I say that we chose it based on us, it's not just who we are. It's also who we want to be. So it's about what we want to learn.
1: Yes, exactly. Your growth areas, right? Like you don't necessarily want to learn, right? Like about the intricacies of how your language runtime works, right? Yeah. That's
0: not my growth focus. Yeah. I want something boring, for a language, and I wanted boring deployment. Yeah, totally. So Rails to Heroku is is a happy path. Whereas what I want to learn is more about like really seeing a change in the world. I'm interested in the results of this app and whether it's useful. So I went straight to observability. Yeah. Uh, before any features, I I want to learn Honeycomb. That's where I'm interested in in expanding and i know honeycomb will follow us right over to lambda if we ever implement this right but i know deploying lambdas is an effing nightmare and i'm not interested in that particular pain right now right (laughs) what are you (laughs) hoping to learn from observability i want to when people use the app when they hit the page at all i want to see it yeah and of course, it also teaches us about our technology. For instance, yesterday I was going through a trace and I was like, Oftie, did you know that Rails makes 13 database calls? Oh my God. For a single page load? <laughs> and yeah. he was like, Oh no, the sequel shows up in the logs. I'm like, one of the sequels shows up in the logs. One of those database calls actually hit one of our tables. The other ones are all like, show time zone and set error handling. And a couple of them are the, the long ones are digging through the the information schema.
1: Yeah, I had that same experience when I was helping out the folks at Dev2 uh, slash the practical dev with instrumenting their code and finding out, why are you sending so many spans? Oh, that's because we really are making that many database calls, right? Like, all these things get hidden away from you and in order to understand the operational performance, you actually have to service them.
0: The miracle of objections. Yeah, and then he was like, is that just the first time? So I hit the page again and I said, no, the second time it only makes eight. <laughs> but it's just so easy to see things, and, and it's, isn't it addictive? Don't yeah. you just get hooked on that dopamine hit of just like knowing what's actually happening? It's just like a the the test turned green. That that yeah. green test was a dopamine hit, and still is for the people who really love TDD. But changing something on my laptop isn't enough. <laughs> and
2: what's amazing is when you start finding things that that you didn't know were there that were problems. Mm-hmm. When like you, you're like you just start poking around, and go oh shit. of the traffic to my MySQL system is a health check. I am DDoSing myself. You know, when you (laughs) find those things, like, before, we had this experience over and over, our customers do, where they just, like, they get honeycomb set up, they just start clicking around just idly and find these terrifying things in their systems that they had no idea even even existed. That's what gets me just, like, really excited. (laughs) We've all got warts. Lots and lots of hairy words.
1: But it's kind of interesting that for you, the kind of thing that got you started was thinking about the user insight component, uh, getting into insight into what your users were doing with your system. And then you found your way to kind of the operational resilience and operations side side. rather than yeah. a lot of people come to it the other way around, right? Like They come from an ops background and they say, mm-hmm. I want to understand the operational performance. And then their product development software engineers adopt the kind of observability mentality later. Yeah. So it's really cool to see it working both ways.
0: Right, yeah. I know I'm not going to have... Uh, like major operational problems for a little while because we don't have users. It's a hello world right now. Um, but, but I can drive my own work. Yeah, This really makes me want to implement a feature now. Now I'm like, oh, I really want to be able to send this to people. We need auth, okay? Um, <laughs> it's that early. I've heard from se-
2: several product managers who use Honeycomb who are just like, this is the perfect product management. Well, there are product en- managers who have engineering backgrounds. <laughs> mm. And what I love is that when, when you have this single source of truth, when you have business people and engineers and engineering different, like because tools create silos, like the edges of where a tool gets used mm. is an edge of reality. And if you aren't careful, you can get into a position where teams spend more time arguing about the nature of reality itself than trying to solve the same problem.
1: Right. And this is where I really love, Jess, your analogy about kind of working in the same kitchen, right? Like, are you working in the same kitchen? Are you kind Mm. of, you know, having to coordinate elbow to elbow, right?
0: Right. That's joint activity. Yes. As opposed to let's meet at six o'clock. You bring the potatoes. I'll bring the meat. That's just coordination. Yes. Yes. And that isn't teamwork. And that's not discovery. And your your tomatoes and your meat might not go together. Yeah. You might have everyone bring a dessert. (laughs) Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. So kind of how can we make our tools more like kind of working in the same kitchen together than kind of just, just merely coordinating?
0: I really like that, Charity, about the edge of the tool is the edge of a reality. How can we be in the same world? Because that's such a problem in the real world right now. Yeah. Is people living in different realities. How can you work together to affect system change? When you don't live in the same world. If you can't even agree on on the basics of what's happening.
1: Right. Yeah, we have to share axioms. We have to figure out what is the problem. We have to be able to decompose the problem, right? Like these are all steps that need to happen in order for us to be able to productively make some progress.
2: And when it's done well, it's completely invisible. <laughs> it's only when it breaks down that suddenly we're aware of how much goes into this.
0: Right, how much ground we're standing on. Yes, exactly.
1: We or conversely, just- right? Like this is the challenge, right? Like if it's already broken down... How do you figure out how to fix
2: it? We stand on the shoulders of so many giants, just like the tens of thousands of engineering hours that have gone into the best practices and defaults that we take for granted today. It's really awe-inspiring to, to just like think about that.
0: Yeah, that's what's cool about being human. It's, it is.
2: I feel like I was so fortunate in, in my career because my first job after dropping out of college was Winden Lab, which was this very weird, quirky, but, you know amazing, like really talented engineers who are thinking about things from first principles. We were managing these really large systems before the days of chef or puppet. The high-functioning team built you. The high-functioning team built me. And because of that, my standard for my jobs has always been sky high. Like I am not satisfied, like with mediocre, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and this made me really restless. But I feel so grateful for that because there are so many people who are so much better engineers who I am who haven't had that experience. And they just don't, The jobs that they're in, I'm like, what? You're better than this. They're just like, what? This is normal, you know? Mm. And for raising my standards, I am so grateful. (laughs) And Christine and I have said so many times that if for Honeycomb, if all we ever manage to accomplish is just raising that bar for the people who come after us, that's enough.
0: That's an effect on the world.
1: Well, let us all hope that we manage to all have that kind of a positive effect upon the world. I think that that's kind of what you know, at the end of the day motivates a lot of engineers is can I have a positive impact on the world?
2: Meaning, autonomy,
0: and mastery. Mastery, autonomy, and purpose, but eh. Meaning, purpose, same thing. But I think, I think, well, yeah, you said meaning, which I think is better because it's not about me mastering something and it's not about me doing what I want on my own computer. Right. I want interdependence not autonomy. You want ripple effects.
1: That shared sense of accomplishment, right? Mm-hmm. Like that shared sense of... That's
0: so much better than an individual accomplishment. Oh my gosh.
1: There are definitely people who who thrive on being lone wolves, but for every mm. lone wolf, there's like so many people who value cooperation so much more.
2: Even the lone wolves kind of underestimate how important it is to them. Mm. It can be something that you don't cognitively think of yourself because, yes, I have always been one of these people like I, I'm rather late to the realizing how important other people are to me, but it was always there. I was just mm. able to take it for granted for a long time.
0: Yeah,
1: mm, Or kind of the other alternative way of thinking about it, right, is like sometimes your lone wolves are the people scouting ahead, right, like paving the trail for other people to follow, right, or to help those other people along.
0: Yeah, or just, just to give a, a new idea Yeah. of what's possible. Yeah. Of what could be, which Honeycomb definitely does. Thank you. I'm so
2: excited that you finally managed just to try us. <laughs> yeah, me too. It is fucking lonely as hell, but there are kindred spirits out there like you.
1: Yeah, exactly. The first time that I saw you speak about somathecy, I was like, oh my God, right? Like, you know, like Jess is onto something. Yeah. But like no one else is talking about somathecy and yet it clicks, right? Like how do we popularize this? How do we spread it? Yeah. What's great about uh, talking about
0: somathecy and how great teams make great people is how many people say yes, I've been thinking this and now I have words to put around it.
2: We found that a lot with the observability. Like when we started talking about the high cardinality stuff, the observability stuff. Mm. like and, and like a lot of people like nitpick about the definition and shit. But like, it was hard to build, but it was way harder to figure out how to talk about it. And mm. I remember the morning when I Googled the definition of observability and I realized that it had this rich lineage in mechanical engineering and control systems. And it's about, you know, understanding what's happening inside the system just by asking questions from the outside with no prior knowledge, with no like library of past outages, with no like you, know, you get that chicken and egg thing where you have to know what you're looking for before you go and you search for it. You is- have to know where to put the printout in order right. to
0: see what it says and like
2: having that language just the words to put to it has been and so many people are like yes I've had this problem yes this is a problem for me
0: too so language is really powerful yeah sympathy is the best word I've had for the people and software and tools in a software team all learning from each other
2: have you not heard other people repeating that word back to you like have you encountered it in the wild yet from somebody who's like Jessica let me tell you about sympathy." <laughs> No, they always have to ask me how to pronounce it. That's how you're going to know that you've, been, you've made your mark on the world. You're going to be in the line of the supermarket one day, and somebody's going to be like, so have you heard of this thing called symatis? I really think you'd
0: like it. That would be great. Yeah. I didn't coin the word. That's important to me. So I am building on Nora Bateson's concept, at least.
1: Yeah, I think we definitely see the word socio-technical crop up a lot more, but soon I hope somathecy is also going to pop up as well. Because Yeah,
0: because the focus on the learning. Yeah,
1: the learning bit rather than just the people. It in- all
0: goes together, you know? Yeah, and the tools mediate. The tools are where you
2: start. The tools are the lever that will change the world, as Archimedes mm. said, you know?
0: Because the tools are the edge of your reality. And what you're doing is you're deepening your reality with better tools.
1: That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed, and I hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Ollicast.
2: To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.